0: John chapter 2. Make sure I'm turned. Got this thing going. John chapter 2. Again, it is good to see everyone this morning. It's I'm excited to preach this message to you. And um, before we read it, I want to just kind of tell you the story. And do you like my sermon title? Blank. So I'm real creative. Uh, I think I just forgot to put it in there. But um y'all think about it and at the end one of you give me a good title for the sermon and we'll use that we'll use that title. I didn't have one. I want you to imagine that you're alive in Jesus' time and you are one of his early disciples. And I want you to imagine that you just met him and you're you're following him around and he's teaching and you're listening, and you're you're taking it all in and in he's he sounds very wise and he sounds very you know calm and collected and just speaking truth and and you're just again taking all this truth in and you're following him around and and trying to learn from him you want to be his follower you want to be his disciple and you notice that even though the messiah was supposed to be a king he doesn't seem like an earthly king he's not carrying a sword he's not talking about overthrowing the government and so you're just like this is a different sort of king. He's a very mild-mannered Messiah. And so later on, as you're, this, you and this other group of disciples are following him, you, you go to Jerusalem, the big city, and you are going there to worship. And you're going there to uh, experience the Passover celebration. And so you walk with this small band of disciples following Jesus, watching his every move, seeing what he does as he enters the city. And the city is just busy. The city is kind of like going to town during Christmas shopping season. Y'all like doing that? We sometimes go to Tupelo during Christmas shopping season. Worst idea ever. Don't do it. But you walk into Jerusalem and people are everywhere because people have traveled from near and far to celebrate the Passover in the city. And as you walk in, you, you just you're looking around. You hear the south. You hear the, the the sounds and you see the sights of the city. And you see in the distance that temple, that place of worship, and just a beautiful structure and a beautiful place that means so much to you uh, as as someone who would go to worship there. And you're following Jesus and you're walking around and as you near that temple and get inside the temple, you see that Jesus, his complexion or his temperament maybe changes a touch. You see a little different look in his eye and you're like, what is that look? (laughs) What's going on here? And the next thing you know, This mild-mannered Messiah, the one you've been following who's been just calmly talking and calmly teaching, runs over and starts flipping over tables. And he starts running these men out of this temple. And you're like, I didn't see that coming. (laughs) What's going on here? And then he takes the time to make some type of whip. And he runs the animals that would be there for sacrifice, he runs these animals out of the temple. And so if, we can, if you can put yourself there, there's dust flying, there's animals making noises, running out, people are running out, tables are being flipped over, and you're just watching this Messiah as he cleans house. And you're thinking, what's going on here? Well, what is Jesus, what is he doing? I didn't, didn't see that coming. Maybe that's a good title. I didn't see that coming. That's kind of my version of the story. I want you to use your imagination a little bit. But let's read what exactly the scripture says in John chapter 2. We're going to read 13 through 25. And if you're in verse 13, let me know you're awake by saying word. word. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem... And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, take these things away, not my father's house, as a house of merchandise, and his disciples remembered that it was written, "The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up." By the way, as they watched him do this, some of them remembered Psalm sixty-nine, verse nine, that said, "The zeal for the house of God will consume him." And in that moment, these men—these men, by the way, many of them—they knew the psalms. And in the moment, this verse seventeen tells us they remembered. Wow, that was talking about this moment when Christ is zealous for the house of God. Verse 18 Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the body of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. So I want to go through this story, this text, and I want to bring out some points that apply to them and some points that also apply to us as well. And so a couple of key things we need to know here. The first thing is the reason they went to Jerusalem was to celebrate the Passover. Now many of us know what the Passover is. It was this, or it is, was and is this Jewish holiday where they celebrated the Exodus. They celebrated when God delivered them from uh, slavery in Egypt. And so once a year, they would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate this. A few, a few thoughts about it. First, like I said, they would, they would travel there to Jerusalem. And you see some of this, by the way, in Deuteronomy 16. It kind of explains some of this. But they would sacrifice at, at night. Um, they would make these sacrifices. They would take these animals there to the priest. There in the temple area. They would make sacrifices there. Uh, number three, they would eat unleavened bread for seven days. And that unleavened bread was for a purpose, reminded them of the things that God had done for them. And then on the seventh day, they would assemble for some type of worship assembly. In Jesus' day, people would do this yearly. As a matter of fact, Luke 2.41 tells us that Jesus' parents would go and celebrate the Passover. But as we've already thought about and read about, when Jesus showed up for this particular Passover, he noticed something that disturbed him. He noticed something that he did not like. He noticed something that was not good, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. First, I want you to talk about, I want you to think about the temple. And I have a picture here for you. I want you to check out this picture I'm going to put up here. Um, this is like a 3D model of what the temple might have looked like. But you can imagine, right, people everywhere and animals and just the hustle and bustle of this celebration. Uh, the very tall part back there is kind of that, that main part, but um, it's a pretty neat, I thought, neat 3D model there of what it might have looked like. Obviously, we don't have any actual pictures. This is a model, okay? But this temple was a beautiful structure, and it was made as a place of worship and a proper place for, for their sacrifices. And so uh, we know the first one was built by Solomon in the Old Testament. It was destroyed and then they built another one, which we read about ever in Ezra and Nehemiah. And so, yes or no, was the temple an important place for the Jews? Yes, very important. First, we know in the Old Testament there was the tabernacle, and then they built the temple. Then it was destroyed. They built the other. They built the next. The second temple. It was in a very important place for them. And I wanna, I wanna make a side note of application here. And we we no longer have that same type of theology of where we have to go to a city or go to a temple. Now, we do come to the church, but do we really? Do we come to the church or are we the church? We're the church. And some people follow what I call temple theology, and I think we are all um, tempted by this. And I think it's okay as long as you know it and you, know, you don't let it take over your life. And here's what I mean by temple theology, and this is kind of a side note of application. Some people overemphasize the church building and the other external preferences related to the church, and they minimize pure worship. They minimize the preaching, the praying, the singing, the fellowship. And this may not apply in our place, but I promise you this applies to a lot of Christians today. A lot of Christians say, I can't worship God if I'm not in a certain place. Now, I love our building. I love this church building. I do. I enjoy coming here. I like our fellowship hall. I like everything about our church facilities, and we're blessed to have them. But if we all got up right now and walked to the fellowship hall, we could worship. We could go out to the parking lot, which we did some during COVID. We can worship. We could all get up and go to someone's house Who's volunteering that? But we could do that, and we could worship, because we're not under this, again, what I just, I gave it this title, temple theology. Now, yes, we do come together. God's commanded us to gather as the church. We do come together for worship, but what made it different is that when the Holy Spirit came, he indwells believers so that the temple is not this building, is it? We are the temple. We're little temples. Christ, the spirit of God lives in us and we are the as the scripture says we are the temple of God. And I want to make sure we know that and make sure that we're not make sure that we're not ever becoming legalistic because that is so such a danger for all of us to be legalistic over certain church preferences instead of over the worship of God. You know, I wish we had a piano, keyboard uh, some extra instruments up here. I would love that. I hope that happens one day, but if we have a guitar, we're going to make the best use out of it and worship the Lord. Or if we just had a keyboard, we're going to make the best use out of it. If we, if I couldn't play guitar and we're up here singing acapella, we would make the best use out of it. Our our goal shouldn't be that our musical preferences affects our worship, and that goes for so many other things. Some people like pews. Some people like chairs. Some people do this or do that. Our external preferences should not be what's most important to us, but rather the pure worship of God. I want somebody to say, man, I want it, we need to pray a little more. I'd love to hear somebody say that. Or, you know, what can we do to have a little stronger fellowship? Or whatever it is, those types of things is, is where our concern needs to be, not on external preferences. A lot of people have this, again, I call it temple theology and it makes, it makes, when you fall into this category, you become very pharisaical, very, again, legalistic, and you think you're better than someone else because you do different things than they do externally. And that's not what we want to be about. That was just a side note. Let's go back to our regular scheduled program here in John chapter 2. Uh, but I think it does apply. Jesus comes to this temple. Put that picture back up there for us, Cooper, that picture, and so we can kind of get a, a visual. Again, this is just a model, but he comes to this temple, and what he sees here are these tables set up and these people selling animals. Now, why would they sell animals? Do you ever do this? Do you ever go to the beach or to the mountains on vacation, and you actually say this to your spouse or kids or family? You're like, we're not going to take so-and-so. We'll get it when we get there like groceries, you show up, at the, show up on vacation, you stop you, if you're going to cook food there, you go and buy your groceries there. And that's kind of what they would do here in a sense. When they got to Jerusalem, they would go buy the things they needed. And so you wouldn't want to take animals on this long journey to the city. You would wait until you got there, and then you would purchase your animals for sacrifice. And the, these guys selling animals was actually not wrong. It's not a, What they were doing as far as selling the animals was actually a service because they were helping people that needed these animals for sacrifice. Also, there was a certain type of Jewish coin they needed to use to, to pay there, and so there were money changers who would kind of exchange the Roman money for the Jewish money, and these people needed that. And so these people, what they were doing, practically speaking, was it wrong, but what was wrong with it? Where they were doing it. By the way, some scholars believe there also may have been some fraud or some price gouging going on so maybe practically they are also wrong but it's where they were doing it right their location was a problem they're in what jesus called what did he say my my father's house is a house of what prayer It's a house of prayer house of worship and they were using using it as business to make to make money how do you think jesus felt He's God, right? Jesus is the son of God. He is God. How did he feel when he looked at the, the place of worship and he saw people in there not worshiping, not praying, but making a profit through selling things? I don't think we can even know how he felt because all of us are sinners. All of us fall short. But to be perfect son of God who is infinitely, infinitely? I can't even talk to him this morning, He is offended by sin more than we can even imagine. And he sees this sin going on. So that leads us to verse 15, where he makes the the whip and he drives the people out. And I believe the feeling that led Jesus to run these people out of the place is something that we call righteous indignation. Did Jesus sin? Did Jesus sin? No. No. So think about that. In his anger, if you want to call it that, or his indignation, in his flipping over the tables, in his running the people out, he never once sinned because it was righteous indignation. It was anger towards something that also angers God himself. And some of us have experienced that. And we do experience that. If there's something, you see sin going on in this world, hey, our country at this time celebrates sin. Sin is promoted. Sin is celebrated. Sin is not only allowed, it's celebrated. And it's okay for us as believers to have this righteous indignation towards sin and things that we see happening that are against God. That's, that's good for us as well. But let me say this about that. We have to be careful. Jesus could do this without sinning. I, think, I find it hard for many of us to do that. Because how many of you have been offended by someone or hurt by someone, or by some sin you've seen, or something you've seen, and it, it pretty quickly takes you to a place of bitterness, right? Or a place of vengefulness, where you want revenge on that person. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and so we leave that in his hands. But how many times do we want vengeance? And so this type, of, you're thinking, you know what? i got a few people I'm going to be righteously indignant toward. We have to be careful, because we're not Jesus, And we'll we'll turn to bitterness, we'll turn to wrath, we'll turn to desiring bad. And James gives us a good point here. I'm going to show you the scripture, James 1, 19 and 20. He says, know this, here's some great advice for us this morning. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. That's good advice for all of us. I mean, God gave us two ears and one mouth, right? So, slow to speak, quick to hear, uh, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I'm guessing there are people in this room, probably starting at the pulpit, where sometimes you have anger and you know that that's not good. We have to ask God, help us. Because usually our anger happens because we're dealing with people, right? (laughs) And they know how to get on our, our wrong side. God, help us to be men and women who who see that anger coming, and we, we, as best we can, get away from it because it does not produce the righteousness of God. Back to this. Jesus had righteous indignation. It was perfect because he is perfect. And I can only imagine what Jesus thought, not only about the people selling the things, but what about the priests? I imagine there was someone allowing this to go on. And I wonder what he thought about I wish we had a conversation in Scripture of Jesus talking to those priests, which we do with some of the Pharisees later kind of, but I'd like to hear what he would say to them. He might walk up to them and say, This is the house of God, and you're allowing irreverent behavior to go on in that house, and it cannot stand. Why did Jesus do it? Well, he's concerned with holiness. He's concerned with righteousness. He's concerned with holiness and righteousness. Jesus is more concerned with your holiness than he is your happiness. I'm going to say that again so you can write it down or put it in your brain. Jesus is more concerned with our holiness than our happiness. Do you think it made these money changers happy when, they, when he ran them out? They're thinking, what's going on here? They're later going to ask him as we read, like, you got to show us some kind of sign, like, what are you doing? Jesus is more concerned with our holiness, our righteousness, than our happiness. And so he might, here's some application, he might allow things and bring things into our lives that don't make us happy, but that in some way, through his sanctifying work, makes us holy. And the thing for us to do is to receive that. Thank you, Lord, for that thing. It doesn't make me happy, but it's going to make me holy. And he shows that here in this this story. Did y'all know? Some of you probably know this. We're in John chapter 2. But in the, the other Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, near the end of the Gospels, they tell the same story of Jesus entering into the temple and running people out. And did you know? that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not telling the same story as John. What am I saying? At the beginning of Jesus' ministry here, he did this, and at the very end of his ministry, at the end of his life, he did it again. (laughs) Three years later, Jesus went in there and saw the same thing going on, and he ran people out again. Isn't that crazy? And again, him doing that twice, once is enough, but twice shows us That's how serious he was. He was not going to allow that to take place. Look at verse 18. I mentioned this a moment ago. It says, Then the Jews answered and said, What sign do you show us, seeing that thou doest these things? And again, the dust settles. The animals calm down. The people are like, What's going on? What sign? Who do you think you are? I think that's what they're saying. Who do you think you are? Um you better have a good reason for what disturbing everything here in, in our temple. We had a nice thing going. Who do you think you are? And Jesus responds in a way only Jesus would in verse 19. He didn't give them a sign, but he told them about he told them about a sign. He said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Cooper, give us the picture again. Jesus said, Destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. What do you imagine they're thinking? They're like, this temple? This thing took years and years to build. The next verse says something about 46 years. It took years. It's Been there for years. It took years. If we destroy that, you're going to build it back in three days? And they're like, maybe this guy's insane. <laughs> maybe this guy's crazy. Nobody... Could build this temple back in three days, right? Well, let's keep reading 20 and 21. Then said the Jews, and I just told told you this 40 and 6 years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. So we know what Jesus was saying, right? You destroy this temple, you take my life, and three days later I will raise it up. They're asking for a sign. He does not give it. But three years later, he will give them the greatest sign. That he is truly the son of God. That he can say and do these things. I was looking through some scripture. Matthew 27, verse 40 tells us that when Jesus was on the cross. Y'all remember Jesus on the cross and the people walking by? And someone says to him, They said, I remember you said that you could rebuild the temple in three days. And if you could do that, save yourself from that cross. People said that to him when he was hanging there giving his life for us. They remembered what he said here in John chapter 2. They didn't realize, though, did they, that he had to die so that sinners could live. Verse 22. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So they remembered this thing, they remembered it later, and here's some application for you. It is good to intake the Bible into your life. Every single person in this room, I don't care the youngest child in here, the oldest adult, the smartest of us, the least smartest of us, all of us, it would be good for us to have a regular intake of the Bible into our lives. And it might not even be something that, you, that maybe speaks to you in that moment, but it might be days, weeks, or years down the road you remember something you were taught that helps you then. I mean, can y'all do that? I can remember things that my grandmother told me and taught me about the Lord, and from time to time, that pops back into my mind. You all that way, or something that a former preacher told you, or a former, you know, Sunday school teacher, and it pops back in your mind. And so there's something about getting as much intake of the Bible as you could possibly get, and you get that through our preaching on Sunday morning, you get that through our Wednesday night discussions, you get that through daily Bible reading. We all need to put the word in our hearts. And three years later, these disciples remembered. What Jesus had said, and they believed the scripture. Verse 23. So again, Jesus does these, he does eventually do some signs while he is there. He does some miracles while he's there. We don't know exactly what these miracles are, but many people, it says, begin to believe in his name. But verse 24 tells us that Jesus did not entrust himself, did not commit himself unto them. And what that means is these people who saw these miracles of Jesus were not believing in him in truth. They were believing in Him because He did miracles. They liked the the show that He put on. They did not truly trust Him. And it says there that Jesus knew knew their hearts. Look, it's not enough for you to be excited about Christ or to be interested in Christ. There are millions and millions of people who might have an interest in Christ but if they died today, they would spend eternity in hell apart from God. Because it's not enough just to be interested. It's not enough just to be excited about religion. It's not enough to be a fan of Jesus. We have to be followers of Jesus. If you're a fan of Jesus, you're like, oh, he's pretty good. I'll go on Sundays and I'll go to the game. I'll I'll cheer. I'll be a, I'll be a fan. Jesus doesn't need fans. He doesn't call us to be fans. He calls us to be followers. It says here he knew their hearts, and he knew, I think one thing he knew is they could hinder his mission. Uh, another example of this is over in John 6. We'll read it later, but Jesus fed the 5,000, and the people were like, this guy is king. We're about to anoint him. And Jesus in John 6, he had fed the 5,000, and he went and hid in the mountain. He just needed to get away from the crowd. He knew it wasn't time for that to, to take place. Jesus knew these people. He knows, he, don't, he not only knew their hearts, but the Lord knows our hearts, doesn't he? I was thinking about this yesterday, and Aubrey, my six-year-old, walked up. Is she six? Yeah. I get it confused. My six-year-old walked up, and she said, Dad, no matter what we do, Jesus sees it all. <laughs> she's, she's learning in children's church. Um. I was like, you're right. She said, I'm telling you. <laughs> she said, I'm telling you. God, God sees everything. You know, I know. I know. I, I was just sitting in the chair. Maybe, you know. But I was talking about this verse about him knowing what's in man. And she heard me, and that popped in her brain. She was like, He sees it? I am like, He does. But do we really think about that, though? Do we think about that? You know, we can hide from each other. We can hide things, but not from the Lord. We, we try to, don't we? I think that's a, uh, here comes another application from the side, but what does it say that we come to church and act different than we act somewhere else? Now, this is a holy, I mean, this is, we're holy, I mean, as far as we're the church, we're called to gather together and be the holy people of God, but if you act a lot different out there than you do in here. Is that good? Think about that. You've heard this said before, right? Like, don't say that in church. <laughs> he said this in church. I mean, can God see you in your bedroom just like he can see you in here? Right. So-and-so cussed in church. heard people say, So-and-so cussed in church. You know, well, is that bad? Well, yeah, well, maybe they shouldn't do it anywhere then if that's bad. You know, like, so-and-so lied in church, you know. Now, yes, we should be reverent in the house of God when we come together. If you find that you act completely different here than you act out there, you might need to just ask yourself why. And maybe we all need to clean up our act and act better anyway. But what am I getting at? We don't want to be fake. Don't be fake. I had someone talk to me this week, and he said a couple... Inappropriate words, he's like, "Man, I'm so sorry." He's like, "I know you're a preacher," and I was like, "I'd rather you just be yourself." and I'm not—I don't want you to keep talking to me like that. But I'd rather you just be yourself because be real, be yourself. And if you're—if you think you're wrong, repent of that. But like, be yourself. I, I appreciate y'all. I think a lot of you treat me like I'm just a regular person. I appreciate that. Um, I should—I don't feel like I'm up on a pedestal, even though I kind of am. <laughs> but, but. My point that I was supposed to make here was we can fool man, we can fool each other with fakeness, but we can't fool God. And he's the one we should want to please anyway, right? Conclusion. I have two points of conclusion. First one is, as a church family, we need to seek to make sure our worship is aligned with the Word of God. What I mean by that is, We need to make sure we're preaching scripture and we do the best we can at it. We need to make sure we have times of prayer, and we do. We have times of singing songs that have biblical truth, and I hope we do. We need to make sure our worship is centered around the word and do nothing that would prevent a pure time of worship. And that's what happened in John chapter 2. They were polluting the worship of God. We don't want to pollute it. The second thing I want you to see is that Christ and the Lord desires pure worship. And God is serious about sin. God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. So just as Jesus ran those people out of the temple, God must do something about sin. Mustn't he? Right? Every sin that's ever been committed is paid for or will be paid for. And there are two ways sin is paid for. One, a person does not trust Christ. They die in their sins and they go apart from God in the lake of fire for all of eternity. And some people are like, wow, lake of fire? The actual lake? You know, I believe the scripture that there is an everlasting torment for all those who do not trust in Christ. Why? Well, God hates people. Well, no. We're sinners who deserve that. That sin must be paid for. And so either your sin will be paid for that way or your sin was paid for when Jesus said, it is finished. And he, the Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice, laid that life down for your sins. And the Bible says if you will trust him, you will be Saved. I'm thankful for the one who said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And I'm thankful that the temple was destroyed. And by the way, they didn't destroy it. He said, I'm going to lay it down of my own accord. He laid down his life and then he took it back up three days later that we might have victory over sin and death. Jesus is good. He's good. How serious that sin must be. For which God must send his son to die, but how serious that love must be for which God would give his son to die. Let's pray.